Hey, I bet you thought you were going to be listening to the Andy Social Podcast. Mm, but we're taking over for the next 30 seconds. It's Broden and Cody Flow State Podcast. Where can you check it out? You can check it out everywhere. All the, all the podcast platforms, YouTube and Facebook as well. That's right. And then weekly we'll be talking about uh, anything we can with whoever we can for as long as we possibly can get away with. Uh, it's a great time. On our podcast, we chat to UFC fighters, elite athletes, comedians, whoever. Anybody who's got a great story to tell. And that could be you. So maybe you'll end up on our podcast one day. you got to check it out. The Broden and Cody Flow State Podcast. Available everywhere you can find a podcast. Now, back to Andy's show. Thanks, Andy. Hey, it's the Andy Social Podcast, and before we kick into this week's episode, come over and join me on Patreon. That's right, patreon.com slash Dowling is the place to go to support this little old podcast of mine, and support starts from only a buck a month, dirt cheap, little feel-good payment, and there are additional tiers to support the podcast, and you get uh, exclusive little goodies, including podcast episodes for Patreon only, where I waffle on and talk about a whole bunch of different Things, lots of silly stuff, including a segment called James and Planes, uh, which features James Norbert Avani giving me recommendations for different planes to talk about, um, of all things. Uh, but lots of dumb and fun things that I do over at Patreon. But more importantly, the support that uh, you guys give via Patreon keeps the Andy Social Podcast fueled. And I have lots of grand plans for the future, and it all comes from my Patreon community. So thank you very much to you guys, and uh, get over to patreon.com slash Dowling. And join the fun. And it's uh, another episode of the Andy Social Podcast, episode 232. We have a return guest on the potty. It is Ryan Quarrington from Shatterbrain, Alkira, Paraphernalia Wagon, The Kraken, a whole bunch of great. Adelaide metal bands. Um, Ryan was on the podcast on episode 227, and uh, this is part two of that chat, and we had an epic long chat, and I split this into two very distinctive sections. Uh, part one was all about uh, music. Uh, we talked about Shatterbrain's latest album, Pitchfork Justice, which you can grab right now from shatterbrainmetal.com, and we just talked about uh, metal and uh, Ryan's uh, early sort of musical beginnings and getting into metal and just and lots of lots of music talk, but part two goes in a different direction. And uh, what a lot of you people don't know, you people, uh, is that Ryan is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Adelaide Spinal Research Group and Centre for Orthopaedic and Trauma Research at the University of Adelaide. Fuck, that's a mouthful. Um, amazing. Amazing stuff that Ryan does, and uh, Ryan will be able to uh, talk about this far better than I can in this intro, but um, let me let me attempt to butcher it. Uh, but Ryan, more or less, in a very sort of uh, poor way of describing it, uh, obtains, um, legally, obtains uh, people's bodies that have been donated um, and puts these uh, bodies, more so tor- uh, the torso, uh, through um, different types of trauma to... Uh, to research how the spine reacts to trauma and um, and understands why spines break or dislocate or whatever it might be, um, and and in the hope that they can find ways to um, support and take care of people that have um, received spinal injuries, etc. Um, I'll let Ryan explain it far better than me. But um, amazing, amazing work. Um, Ryan's got some killer stories. You're going to really get a kick out of this. Um, and I've mentioned this before in the past, um, but 
this is an example of the type of podcast I love doing. Um, I've got so many mates and people that I've played with over the years in the metal world, musicians, and it's great to talk about music. It's great to talk about metal, but it's even better to talk about stuff that is completely unexpected because a lot of these guys you only get to interact with in the musical space, uh, but to be able to talk um, and discover um, what people do outside of music is just really, really fascinating. And this is one of the best examples out there of somebody that's just doing something so incredibly cool. Um, and interesting. So really hope you enjoy this one. Uh, go and support Shatterbrain's brand new album, Pitchfork Justice, over at shatterbrainmetal.com. Shatterbrain's on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. I'll put all the links in the show notes as well as Ryan's social media handles. I'll put some links to uh, Ryan's uh, work that he does as well um, that's uh, talked about in this chat um, over in the show notes over at andydaling.net or andysocial.net. But that's it. Let's kick into this episode with Ryan Quarrington. explain um, basically what what the hell a biomedical engineer is and what do you actually do? Um, well, so I work for a um, research organisation called the uh, Adelaide Spinal Research Group. Um, it's, it's a part of the Adelaide Medical School at the University of Adelaide. Um, and I guess that the the main I've got a lot of different projects now because I'm I'm a postdoc at the moment so I'm kind of across across everything that our group does but my my main area of research is um, cervical spine or neck trauma so um, my PhD was on trying to understand um, neck dislocation we call cervical spine facet dislocation so essentially when people dive into a shallow pool or don't wear their seatbelt properly, or even if they do wear their seatbelt properly and it's a particularly bad car accident, when they get paralysed, um, more often, well, about 50% of the time, they've had a thing called uh, this neck dislocation injury, um, which is where you actually have, as the name suggests, a dislocation of the neck. So you have two vertebrae um, dislocate, and then your spinal cord, which passes through your neck and that carries all the, the um, signals from your brain to the rest of your body get squashed and then you become paraplegic and you're just floating in the water and your friends come in and grab you. Um, trying to understand why that actually happens. So it's 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 not a very frequent injury. It happens in about 2% of all trauma cases, but it um, when it does occur, it's you're pretty much guaranteed to, to have um, a neurological injury and end up in a wheelchair. Um, so it's pretty... it's. Uh, it's a pretty serious kind of injury, um, but people don't, we don't really know exactly what causes it. We've got we know the causation, so what kind of things are associated with it, but we don't know exactly what's happening to the head and the spine and the rest of the body when when the when the bones actually dislocate. So my PhD was was basically uh, aimed at un- better, like a better understanding that. So the first part of it was I did an audit of cases at our local hospital and did some statistical analysis to try and correlate um, features of the injury and features of the, the patient cohort with their neurological outcome. And then the second part of it was working with um, cadaver spines uh, in um, materials testing machines, which is where the engineering part of it comes in, to actually try and create the injury and uh, see what kind of forces and, and um, uh, loading directions would, would, would cause the spine um, to move such a dislocation occurred. So that's that's and that's my main area of, of research, really. So, all right. So to to interpret it in a in 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 an Andy way, um, that last part you said, you're basically getting um, 
donations from from people that have deceased that have been deceased, and mm-hmm. putting those parts through trauma to try mm-hmm. and replicate um, some of these things that have happened. So, like a, a healthy specimen, but putting putting that through a, a degree of trauma or some sort of scenario that would put it through a similar trauma that would increase the the likelihood of a similar situation occurring. Exactly right. Yeah. So we take healthy cadaver material. Yeah. I dissect it down. Um, and then I um, manipulate it so that I can apply controlled uh, conditions to it, so controlled forces or impacts or displacements or whatever it might be to try and uh, create the injury. And I try and replicate what might be happening in a um, real-life scenario as best as possible. And then I basically instrument the shit out of the the specimen so I put lots of strain gauges on there so things that measure how much the the bone is deflecting uh lots of do lots of like 3d motion capture so putting essentially photoreflective markers on each um so our spine has seven vertebrae or eight vertebrae depending how you characterize it um and I put little photoreflective markers on each one so that I can record that while I'm doing that the injury or trying to create the injury and see how each little vertebra is moving relative to the next and that can help us to inform what's happening during a, a real life scenario. Um with the ultimate goal of just trying to better understand how we can stop uh those exact combinations of low of forces and and uh displacements happening to the the head or the spine and prevent these injuries from happening. Um, just, just so I can get a, a bit of a visual or anybody that's listening, get a visual when you say like parts of a cadaver, is it like, is it like, to what extent are you getting right down to a very small cross section of vertebrae or anything like that? Or have you got like a torso or like, like to what extent are you actually like, what is it? What are you, what are you actually dealing with? What's the, what's the tangible? So it depends on the on the research question um, or the project, really. So my PhD, I dealt with what we call functional spinal units. So that's essentially two vertebrae, which are the, the bones in your neck and all the joints that go between those. Mm. Um, and so I was dealing with those at, at, um, at a very sort of fundamental level, trying to just apply... Um, very controlled uh, motions to those to that one joint and see how I can dislocate it, um, and that essentially took my entire PhD just doing just doing that part of it um, with all the measurements all the measurements that went around it. Um, but then now my postdoc, so we got we got a, a, a federal grant based on my PhD work to continue the, the work, and that's what I get paid out of now. Um, and I've moved from these isolated units to full necks so essentially what we get in typically are head necks that have so essentially when someone donates their body they just get a big bandsaw and they um, cut it up and divide it off into whoever wants to purchase the the um, individual parts and we ask for mostly the whole spine but if we can't just the neck and the head and then I get those and then I have to go in and dissect those down to whichever parts I want so at the moment I'm taking off the heads and I just use the the cervical spine or the neck um, and then I'm putting that into a contraption I've designed, which is called a drop tower, which is essentially a weighted carriage that I drop onto the specimen and I have the specimen configured to try and replicate what would happen in in this kind of scenario during a car crash or someone diving into a shallow pool or whatever. And then I measure what happens and see if I've created the injury. Fuck. Um, I probably should have uh, brought this up at the beginning of the conversation. Fucking hell, this is like... (laughs) mental um i mean in in like a really interesting intense way but i mean 
I, all right. Um, hang on. Let me uh, let me work out which way to go with this. Um, so, have like going through all of your your study and and obviously this has been years of you of you sort of yeah studying and and getting up to where you are now. Um, is is where what you're doing now as far as you know working with with specimens and things like that. I mean, obviously it's it's it comes with the territory. It it is what it is, but. Has this been a big learning curve for you or a big sort of environmental sort of adjustment for you to sort of get used to, to dealing with this sort of stuff? Because, you know, if you, uh, you, you everyday dropkick, um, you know, most people <laughs> never get to see, well, I shouldn't say never get to see, they never see a, like, you know, a deceased person for the most part, um, let yeah. alone sort of in a, a very full frontal, very in, like I would assume very intense sort of uh, position, even if it is, even if it is sawed up, you know, it's, it's still, yeah, still a piece of person, you know? So, I mean, how's that been for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, when I, so, um, not to give you my life story, but when I, when I first came into uni, I was like a, a very sporty kid, despite what appearances would suggest now. Um, and I was good at school. So when I was sort of looking at unis and what I wanted to get into, um, there was this course at University of LA called Sports Engineering. And I was like, oh, well, that combines the best of both worlds. I'll just go and do that. Um, but then I kind of realised that, you know, I, I thought I was going to end up working for Nike and designing boots and make millions of dollars or whatever. Um, but then I kind of realised that it wasn't really what I wanted it or what I wanted. So I kind of got more into the engineering side of things. And then um, my supervisor now, she came and spoke um, when I was in third year or second year or something like that about what she did, which is essentially what I do now. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I went and did honours and PhD and whatnot with her. So it was definitely not what I sort of intent, like started out thinking I was going to do. And then all of a sudden you're just at a point when you're, where you're in a morgue or you're in an anatomy lab, laboratory and there's bodies in front of you and you're, cutting them up <laughs> so it was it's the first time it was a, a bit of a shock but you start to kind of just realize what humans are made up of we're just meat and bones and nerves and electrical processes really so um yeah it's a bit of a like you said a bit of a learning curve but um you get over that pretty quickly and and you start to really see the the value in what you're doing and and um how important it is I remember um, there's somebody I had in the podcast years ago, um, uh, fuck, um, Emma, Emma Jane Holmes, I think. And she's, um, she works at a funeral home and, um, she, she was doing like blog posts or whatever to try and, I guess, not glamorize what she was doing, but to, just to try and, I guess, um, normalize put, it. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. And just yeah. put a bit of, um, put a bit of, uh, I guess, um, not so much of a comedic spin against it, but just try and lighten it a little bit and understand like everyone's going to die at some point. So here's, uh, here's my experiences and just try and take away some of the darkness away from it or the, the fear that's away from, you know, that people associate with death. Um, and like she would be sort of assisting with prepping bodies for open casket or just when, you know, or collecting bodies from people's homes when they died or whatever it might be. Um, mm. And, the the way that she, uh, from what I can recall, because it's been a while since um, I even remember that conversation, but um, she got this this sense of d detachment um, from it, where she still sort of had some sort of you know uh, I guess awareness of what was going on around her, but um, really as as you just said, you know we're all 
Yeah, we're 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 made up of meat and flesh, flesh and you know veins and bones yeah. and and things and you know um, you know it is what it is. Like and just became sort of this objective, very factual sort of thing that was in front where it's like, well, I've got a job to do, whatever that job may be, um, and it's not so much about you know getting swept up in um, all those stigmas that are attached to to death and and you know deceased bodies and things like that it's just like well this is my purpose this is my function this is what i need to do in this in this step in this process and uh, i'm going to get in there and and do what i need to do and um just a, it's such a foreign thing for most people because most people just mm. um you know would never never experience any, anything near it yeah i think i was i was lucky as well like my supervisor is really good i, I started my, my honors research project i was um was an animal project so um i won't go into the details but essentially i was working with animal material but she taught me to be to to give that material the same respect that i'd give to a, a, a human cadaver hmm. so the transition really wasn't that um apart from you know seeing your first head and that kind of thing but actually um he- like seeing heads isn't isn't the most striking or like um uh what's the word, shocking, I guess, thing, because mm. you don't really look at your own head that much or heads in general that much. Like, um, and when you, and when you see them, you know, after they're deceased, they just, they just look like props really. Mm. But it's when you see things like hands and feet, like, cause you see your hands and your feet and the palms of your hands every day. And that's actually a lot more confronting, I yeah, find, right. than, the, than heads because it's, it's like, holy, you know, that was someone, you know, lifted a cup of tea however many thousands of times with that thing um during their life so um but you know you you just you're just taught to be respectful and it just it just becomes you know it's a job it becomes part of your job and you're not looking at the minute thing that you're doing in that instance where you might have your fingers up someone's spinal canal trying to dissect it away from the rest of the body um you're just focusing on you know the end goal and being respectful while you do it so it's just a, a state of mind i think yeah, man. Oh, it's it's fucking crazy. I mean, just just from you know, yeah, I guess. I mean, for you, it's 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 been your journey and and what you do, and it's 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 everyday normal practice as far as um, you know what you've studied and what you've got to now. But I guess um, I guess for every for most people out there, it's 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 such a such a weird weird and unusual thing that um that most people would never never be even close to experiencing so it's interesting but even for you just just to sort of compare sort of hands and feet compared to like someone's head like for me like and i think just you know you think about your classic horror movies and things like that you know you always you always associate the head as the the scary part you know Mm -hmm. um the, the part that would shock you but um but that kind of makes a bit of sense where you sort of look at your hands because yeah you apart from looking at yourself in the mirror um, your hands are in front of you and you know sort of what impact hands have in everything. Whereas, you know, I guess you're not picking up things with your, your mouth as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, I think the whole horror movie thing maybe has desensitized at least me mm. to it a little bit. Like, cause you see it and you're like, ah, it just looks like a prop, you know, like it just looks like a thing in the movie that, you know, isn't real, but it's like when you see a hand with, you know, nails and and hair and that kind of thing. And, you know, especially the, the faces that most donors are elderly people. Mm. Um, so um, 
I don't, I don't know how to say this politically, but it's like, you know, <laughs> Do you want me to say for you? Their, time, their time had come. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas, you know, hands, hands, you know, it could be a 40-year-old person, it could be an 80-year-old person. So, yeah, um, yeah. well, you know, it shouldn't matter. But, um, yeah, it just, it, there's a more, hu- I think I find there's a more human element to the, to the, to those kind of things than there is the, the face. Mm. Well, I think, and I, I assume that sort of just knowing what you're doing sort of gives you an overarching sort of purpose, which gives you peace of mind that would then help desensitize what you do. Like it's sort of mm. like, you know, there's a method to the madness, you know, it's not just uh, being exposed to to trauma in general. It's, it's just a case of, um, you know, I, yeah, there is there is a purpose here. I'm I'm here to do something in particular, and there's an end goal, or there's a there's an objective that I'm trying to reach, and so um, I can I can sort of uh, place things into particular categories or into particular things to look at it look at it from a particular angle, so I can interpret it in a way that sort of I can digest it and live with it, um, as opposed yeah. to somebody that probably would see maybe somebody's hacked up body but in a completely different yeah. environment it might be a different story yeah, yeah i mean we, we, there's lots of you know regulation we have to go through um stringent ethics protocols before we do anything so it's it's and and we we have very um strict protocols around how we conduct ourselves and who can see what we're doing and all that kind of stuff and these these people have donated their body to science they know what they've mm. they're getting themselves into you know and, I, and i've elected to donate my own body to science but my only condition is that I'm part of an actual study. I'm not a pilot test or a methods development kind of um, specimen because I want to make sure that my results from my tests are actually in a publication or something important, not just someone's some PhD student's journey along the way. So, oh, so do you uh, mean do you mean um, like as far as um, just just is it is it more of a case of you know they might people might donate their bodies that become sort of something that's in sort of early stage sort of student yeah. learning and then that gets, you know, I can't yeah. think of a better way of uh, describing it, but just thrown in the trash after it's been Yeah, used. yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't actually, you can't actually um, request that. But, you know, I do think about the people who've donated their bodies to science and I've had to tell some student that they fucked up and that basically that specimen's useless and so now, um, you know, it's not going to be part of the final study. But, you know, a, a useful lesson was learned. That person uh, who donated their, their body has contributed to this person's learning and that, that person might go on to win a Nobel Prize. So um, who knows? It's all it's all part of the process, isn't it? I exactly. mean, you, exactly. you need them at every stage of the way. Yeah. Did yeah. you um did you make that sort of call yourself as far as donating, donating, making the decision to donate your body? Was that sort of something that came when you were in the thick of it yourself and sort of looked back and went, actually, yeah, I should do this myself? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't um, really know about it until I started doing this work. Um, but and I, I had chosen, I had uh, elected to be an organ donor. Um, but I took the next step and decided to donate the body, my body to science after I, after I, um, you became aware of the process and this work and that kind of thing and seeing how important it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not for everyone. It's it's it's. Um, you know, you're not going to have a proper, you know, you're not going to have an open casket and, and uh, you know, you're pretty much um, uh, resigning yourself, if that's the right word, to be cremated and that kind of thing. So there are some, um, you know, some of those considerations to make. But, 
the amount of good things that can come out of that potentially can come out of it, I think, um, outweighs all of that. Do you know, do you have any idea sort of not so much statistics, but do you, are there a lot of people that sort of go down this path as far as making those, those calls themselves to donate or is it sort of a minority sort of percentage? Depends. It depends where you're looking in in Australia. It's, um, it's, uh, not so common. Mm. Um, I don't know this. I don't know the statistics, but we get most of our um, material from overseas, from the states in particular, mm. um, because there are. I don't know the, the the full legalities and how the operations work, but I think a lot of the material we get is from homeless or disconnected people. Mm. So there's that kind of aspect to it as well, um, um, and obviously there's a much larger population. And there's only certain people who need this kind of material, so um, it makes most economic sense for us to get it uh, from the states um, primarily. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see because I know that I mean I've spoken to people in the past and they talk about uh, you know uh, being an organ donor or d- donating particular you know, yourself to, to science etc. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean I don't know if there's a correlation between sort of countries that are probably a little bit more religious and those mm. countries sort of not um, electing for those uh, to to do that sort of thing versus more secular um, populations who probably would be more open to. Uh, to to giving that option to people to to allow people to yeah um, do what they need to with with your body. Yeah, we we had a Sri Lankan research engineer working with us for a while, and he was Buddhist. And I'm not sure if this is you know um, across all Buddhist practice, but he was like, "No, nah, there's no way I can donate my body to science. It's like I have karma phala, whatever they call it, and it's like I have other." regenerations of my lifestyle and so my body needs to be appropriately um uh managed after after i pass on that kind of thing so yeah there you get a you get it which for us is a little um disadvantageous because there's a bias in the specimens <laughs> that we can work with mm. um but you know i don't think it's i don't i think people are all pe- are all uh, people in the end um and there's other things you can use to screen for particular traits you want in a um, subject. So um, it all comes out in the wash in the end, I think. Yeah, I guess I guess under under the skin and oh, depending on depending on the research that you're doing, but I mean under the skin probably very similar mechanics that are going on underneath yeah. the hood. Um, especially, uh, well, I assume for the, the type of work that you're doing, um, it would be you know you wouldn't be sort of uh, it wouldn't be too varied as far as the type of people. But would you see um, your research as far as age would be a big factor or yeah yeah yeah, yeah so what so what I saw and it's not it wasn't really a, a groundbreaking kind of discovery but in the um, particular injury that I was interested in my PhD when I did the order of um, cases at the local hospital there was a, a bimodal distribution uh, in age mm. so we had young people who were doing stupid things mm. and then we had elderly people who were falling over and knocking their head mm. and getting this injury and that's very common of all sort of neck injuries that's a, a similar kind of um distribution that that we see um, but another big one 
is um, smoking and also people who've suffered from cancer. So anyone who's had any kind of chemotherapy or whatever, it's, it's um, obviously affects your, your bone quality. Mm. And so those things come into the likelihood of having a, a bone fracture and that kind of thing. So we have to screen for people who've had, um, had any sort of um, radiotherapy or whatever um, or long-term smoking, even drinking as well, bad for um, bone quality. So I'm probably going to be a shit specimen, but... Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, th- th- those kind of things come into it as well that we have to be conscious and mindful of. But, you know, you need that spread to represent the entire population. So because most of our our um, specimens that we get are elderly because we get them from donation programs, um, we can just justify our research by saying, well, that's a big population that gets this kind of injury. So we're targeting it at those people. And if a few 30- to 40-year-old cadavers come our way, then we can look at those as well. Is there... I mean, from um, from what I can recall, what you said earlier, like you, you guys are still, it's still an unknown um, overall. But um, do you have do you have any sort of hunches as far as what potentially is going on? Because I mean, just I, I don't know from a from a dumb shit's point of view. Uh, I put my hand up over here. Um, you know, when when someone goes through that sort of trauma, I'm I'm assuming that. Um, Oh, fuck, here we go. Um, there's going to be, you know, a bunch of, you know, all sorts of, uh, I'll just, I'll just, I'm just going to call it wiring that probably gets, uh, you know, crimped or, or compromised that sort of, uh, yeah. affects the signals that are coming through to the brain. And then obviously that, that shuts down a lot of the, um, the commands that are going to the rest of the body. Um, but I, I don't, obviously, <laughs> Obviously, it's not that simple, um, but what 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 are the hunches that you have so far after doing it for so long? Well, I guess the big um, so we we really come from come at it from the mechanics side of things, mm. um, and so the the um, the mechanism of the actual neurological injury itself is relatively well understood not not entirely but relatively well understood, but actually how the how the dislocation occurs is where we're really what we're really interested in. Right. So, okay. tr- tr- traditionally, um, there's there was a, f- a few papers in the sixties. Um, actually, I've got a great story for you. So, um, oh. please remind me if I forget to tell it. All right, but, um, right there. That, that, <laughs> <laughs> um, particularly in the sixties, there was these researchers who theorised that the way to create a neck dislocation injury was due to hyperflexion so flexion is where you nod your head towards your chest Hmm. but the issue with that is that your your chin touches your chest and you can do that right now if you like and you can do it as hard i'm actually doing it right now yeah (laughs) you can do it as hard as you want and you're not going to dislocate um your neck um but they kind of proposed that they called they called this injury a hyperflexion injury or a distractive flexion injury and then clinicians have just run with it for nearly 60 years um and they've just kind of said yeah that's what happens and there's a lot of other kind of um like particular ligaments that fail that kind of support that a little bit because the the ligaments to the back of your neck fail which suggests oh yeah no if you're stretching forwards and that's and you stretch too far then those will break but um you can't physically do it. You can't physically dislocate a neck by just pushing the head down towards the chest. Um, and actually, uh, I'll tell the story now. Um, this researcher from Adelaide, um, uh, Robert Bors or Bob Bors, he um, 
went over to Oxford for a postdoc or fellowship or whatever surgeons do um, in the early 70s. And he started doing some research and he found that, in fact, um, so he got a bunch of cadaver necks and he did like 13 of them. And he found that, well, if you if you hold the head upright and you have the, the torso fixed and then you start squashing, the neck starts to actually buckle. And then you'll start to see these things, these motions happening in the lower part of the spine, which is where we see most of these neck dislocation cases um, that result in a, in a dislocation. And he was able to produce for the first time these dis dislocation injuries in an experimental situation um, in like six of 12 or six of 14 cadavers in a really crude and rudimentary kind of setup, um, which is pretty amazing. Um, and... That research kind of went unnoticed, and then I was giving a, and I'd referenced him a bunch of times, and sort of, sort of, I'd, there was a few fundamental flaws in his research, so I'd, I'd uh, probably naively dismissed his results and his experiments a little bit. Anyway, I was giving this, I'd finished my PhD, and I was going to give this wrap up presentation at one of our little local meetings at the at the hospital to just a bunch of surgeons, and um, I got this email from this Robert Bores, and I was like name sounds familiar <laughs> and uh he sort of explained who he was and i was like oh holy shit i've been referencing you for like the last five or six years blah 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 and he's like yeah i've got you know he, he was doing this when he was doing that work at oxford he was working with this engineer that ended that went on to be the team leader that developed the first mri machine and yeah. also started a, a company called vicon which is now mm. the, the world leader in motion capture wow. um so really smart guy and so they had like one of the first uh, cine radiograph sets up, setups. So it was like four X-rays per second, taking um, photos of of the X-rays as they were doing what they were doing. And so he had all this amazing legacy material that no one else has ever seen. The paper that they published that I've been referencing it was full of like flaws and things they hadn't analysed or whatever. But he basically came to my lab and he was like, "Here's a box of materials from the seventies. Do whatever you want with it." And I was like, oh, wow, that's that's amazing. You know, I'll get, I'll get heaps out of that. And then he starts telling me about how he just stole the necks that he used from the um, uh, from the morgue, <laughs> like from the anatomy lab at Oxford University, how he didn't know what he was going to do with them when he came back to Australia. So he boiled them down to just the bony parts and brought them in his check luggage back to Australia in the 70s. <laughs> And then at one point he decided it was probably a bad idea to have those in his house, so he buried them in his backyard oh, no. in his old <laughs> in oh. his old house. <laughs> so there's some house somewhere in Adelaide that has 14 necks just buried in their backyard. <laughs> oh, oh, and I mean, no offence, but I mean, South Australia does have a bit of a reputation yeah, exactly. for dodgy, dodgy dealings. Uh, <laughs> over the yeah. Wow. We put um, oh. Snowtown on the map, so now Adelaide's turned. But... <laughs> Oh wow! But oh. anyway, so yeah, so so that so that was that was pretty amazing. But what he showed then is <laughs> yeah. in what, what what Bob showed then in the seventies is basically what we think is the case now. And yeah. uh, it hasn't really been shown, but essentially there's been a bit. There was a bit of research in the nineties, but it still hasn't been conclusively proven. Mm. But what we think is that it's there's actually it's a it's not this sort of nodding force or motion or whatever. It's a, a compression of the head which causes this buckling of the neck. Like if you think, if you've got a piece of spaghetti and you push from both ends, like wet spaghetti, and you mm. push from both ends, it'll kind of buckle. Mm. Same thing happens with the neck and that causes these um, motions to occur in the lower neck, which then results in this dislocation injury. Did you ever, so that, sorry, really quickly, did you, have you ever seen, um, oh fuck, I can't remember the show, but do you remember the character Milo Kerrigan? 
um, which I was, remember the um, name. Yeah, uh, Sean McAuliffe. Um, the mm-hmm. yeah, he had a character on, oh fuck, um, not the Late Show, but maybe Full Frontal or whatever. Milo Kerrigan. Yeah. And so he'd wear like a neck brace or whatever, but he'd have his head really squashed into his shoulders. Yeah. So basically, yeah. like his his whole neck is being pushed down into his shoulders. So when you when you're mentioning that, I'm imagining yep. Milo, Milo Kerrigan just basically pushing <laughs> his pushing his whole head down with his with triple chin happening, right down smack bang into the middle of his shoulders. So yeah, um, well, that's yeah. exactly right. That's okay. exactly what, all right. So and continue. we think that when that happens, really, <laughs> we think that. We think that when the Milo Kerrigan effect happens really quickly, <laughs> that, um, that it causes these dislocations to occur, and so we're 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 trying to we're trying to evaluate that. Oh, fuck! <laughs> How can I make a t-shirt out of this? All right, <laughs> I'm going to write this down. <laughs> I'm going mean, to. My next paper is going to be the Milo Kerrigan effect. <laughs> So good. I'll have to find a photo. Oh fuck. All right. Okay. Oh man. Oh, that's it. That's incredible. I mean, I'm just I'm just picturing this guy. I mean, he's just just from what just to try and recall what you said, he's more or less had this research paper that had a lot of flaws in it. He's done all this extra research, but for for whatever reason that hasn't been publicized or hasn't been validated or whatever it might be, and then he's and it's been sitting there collecting dust, not not doing anything, um, and he's found out about you. So he's, must, he's paying attention to obviously what's happening in the world, like in in Adelaide and the research and things like that. And he's reached out to you and and obviously seen what you you're doing and agreed with you know what what work you're doing and what you're putting together and and supplied you with all this extra material to say here. Hopefully this can help you kind of accelerate what you're already doing, yep. but that gap in time is decades. Like, yeah. So he's off, obviously gone off and done whatever else in his life. Um, and left, left all this stuff sit there. And, and probably not because of his own doing as such, but just because of circumstance. Well, I think essentially it was a condition or a recommendation of part of his fellowship at Oxford, which is a, a very research intensive institution to be like, go do some research. And for whatever reason, he hooked up with this super brilliant engineer and they formulated this experiment and they did it. And it, it, yeah, it, it kind of just like people were aware of it and, but, and, but just kind of hadn't put the different pieces together because Mm -hmm. I think of the flaws. So one of the flaws was that to, to hold the bottom of the specimen. So when you're dealing with these kind of specimens, one of the issues is, how do you grip onto them? Because mm. you've got to keep them wet. You've got to keep them hydrated because um, that's what it's like in the body. Um, yep. Yeah. So, so, ha- but then how do you hold onto them to be able to manipulate them in a controlled environment? Mm. And so his, his um, answer was to stick a pole up the spinal canal and he, he just stuck it up to some random point and then he was like, if I stick it up to here, then the specimen will fail around here. So maybe I'll, for some specimens, I'll stick it to here. Some specimens, I'll stick it to here. But actually, when we look back at his data and what we think we'll find when we go through the process of reanalyzing it, which is what I've just started to do in the, actually in the last couple of weeks, that it didn't matter where he stuck the, the pole up to. If he, just, if he just used it to hold the very, very bottom of the spine where our shoulders would be, where it's, it's, it's kind of um, quite stiff and, and rigid anyway, then it would have dislocated in the same spot regardless. Mm. Um, it's actually that buckling effect and that compressive force which causes the injury to happen. Um, 
but that kind of, you know, I think those flaws in his methodology kind of turned people away for, for you know, 50 years nearly, 40-odd years. So, um, but now it's just, we're just starting to put the pieces together. Has he, has he like, since he reached out and gave you gave you all this stuff to, to look at, has he has he sort of hung around as far as being sort of a resource for, for you and, and your collective to to sort of, you know, get any sort of context or sort of little pieces of tidbits of information along the way, or is he sort of just sort of, you know, sort of swept in, dropped this, dropped this uh, knowledge bomb and, and went off into the, into the darkness? He, he, he did for a couple of weeks. So yeah. he, he, he came and came to the lab, he gave me his materials and then he came to, so the way he found me was that they, they, they send out these emails and he's been retired for 20 plus years. He'd be, over 80, mm. I think, um, and they send out these bulletins every every um, week about the presentations that are happening at the hospital, mm. and you have to, like, go into the attachments and open them or whatever, and he's obviously been doing that for, like, you know, at least 10, 20 years or something like that, but mm. he said to me that was the first one of those um, things he'd attended in, like, over 20 years, wow. <laughs> and everyone who was there was like, oh, my God, that's Bob Ball. Like, people were getting photos <laughs> with this guy. Oh, really? I'm not even kidding. Wow. People were getting photos <laughs> with this guy. Like, he was just a super well-renowned and very highly regarded um, local orthopedic surgeon. He'd started, like, some of the first ever fellowship programs to send um, surgeons overseas for fellowships and all that kind of thing. So he's a pretty... It turns out, I, you know, I didn't know this thing, any of this, obviously, but um, turns out he's, he's a, a pretty big name. But he, he um, yeah, came to the lab, gave me all those materials, came to our presentation. Um, I think he came and visited the lab a second time and I, and uh, we had a chat and then he basically just sent me an email and said, Brian, really impressed with all your knowledge and the work you're doing. Hope my materials can be of use. All I want is for you to create a movie from one of the Cine Radiograph films. So he wants me to kind of digitise those rolls of films of the radiographs and create a film of, of what happened during his experiments because obviously mm. that was very difficult to do back then. And that's exactly what we want to do because we want to look at how the bones were moving when he was doing what he was doing. Um, but I actually emailed him only a couple of weeks ago saying, just checking in, hope you haven't died from coronavirus um, <laughs> uh, um and just wanted to let you know that you know we've got all this stuff in the works and we'll send you through that video that you wanted as soon as we can so wow wow oh, that's incredible i mean uh, so i guess where where you're at and and you know this is obviously you know just even looking at you know his journey and the amount of time that's passed over over the decades you know this it's just it's a it's it's incredible for a simpleton on the outside looking in just to think of, well, like, you know, we're still trying to work out the body. We're still trying to work out how all this shit works. Like we've just, there's so much mystery still attached to, to basically what we're like, I'm just looking at myself like flailing around and moving my arms around as I'm trying to <laughs> <laughs> describe or try and get some awareness of what's, what's going on. But, you know, it's, it's incredible that we're, we're still trying to work all this stuff out. But I guess, you know, with all this research that you're doing, I mean, do you, do you sort of have a thought or a theory as far as what this will lead to, as far as what kind of impact it will have? I mean, obviously, you know, it, it will then benefit, I guess, what recovery or, you know, it, surely it can't be prevention because, you know, if you're in an accident, you're in an accident. I mean, it, you, you can't, you can't, you can't uh, reinforce uh, these, these parts of your body to, to ensure that you don't you don't have these dislocations, but it must be something mm. about recovery that's probably where the focus is. Well, 
it's it's a hard one because we're at such a especially my area we're at such a fundamental part of the process mm. so the main the way we kind of spin it <laughs> or what are the way we sell it is that um what we're doing we're, we're trying to use to inform the devices that inform the prevent the prevention devices so for example crash test dummies crash test mm. dummies yep. they have um maybe a force transducer at the top of the skull uh, sorry, the top of the neck at the base of the skull, and then they have a neck that's represented by one solid link mm. that's then fixed to the torso, and they use those forces to try and figure out whether you know this airbag's working well. Mm. Well, we know that we know that from our research that these injuries that we study they occur at much, much, much lower forces than you would think would cause a, a spinal cord injury based on other types of injuries that can happen. So we need a, a more uh, what we call biofidelic or, or, or more um, physiological or truly representative neck with more sensors to be able to better represent um, the human condition during these traumatic scenarios. So that's, you know, that's the, the little bit, and there's, you know, such limited research, research into that kind of thing. There's, there's the latest um, crash test dummies still only have the neck represented by a couple of links and are just a, a, a force transducer at the top and the bottom. So we're trying to, I guess, um, work our way into into that kind of thing. Like let's better better represent the human body when we're testing things that could potentially lead to um, these kind of injuries. You know, there's been all that you know well publicised stuff about airbags and how mm. um, that they can cause injury in situations where there wouldn't have been injury before um one of the things i went over to the states a couple of years ago and and i was at the um the nhtsa the national uh highway and transport safety authority or whatever it is the space of the big governing body for cars and manufacturing in the states in in um, ohio and one of the things they were saying is that they'll design new tests and then there's teams of engineers at automotive companies that their job is to try and figure out how they can get their car to pass the test mm. not how they can get their car to be safer mm. how they can get it to pass the test so it may be it may be um less stiff or stiffer in particular areas so that it passes the test but in other areas it completely invalidates what they're trying to achieve with these tests so the only way you can kind of um, assess those whether those things are important or not to saving lives is to have better models of the, of the human body. Yeah, didn't even think about it like that. I mean, I guess um, yeah, it's it's getting in 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 front of the prevention. Like it's it's not even about the body itself. It's about you know everything that comes in contact with the body and, and making sure that uh, you're mitigating those those scenarios rather than how the how you know it's not you know for me saying oh reinforcing the body it's like it's about putting the body like everything around it it's all it's all those scenarios that uh that the body experiences so yeah i mean i mean like the the other, the other prong to it that you mentioned that the, the whole um treatment and all that kind of thing that that is a big part of it as well and that's that was kind of the uh, motivation behind the audit that i did for the per first part of my study and you know there's we've got lots of myself um, specifically, but other people in our group have lots of clinical trials currently going on with drugs that we can use to try and um, prevent uh, swelling in the spinal cord, which causes these sequelae of, of spinal cord injury, um, secondary 
um, neurological effects and all that from uh, edema of the cord and and that kind of thing. So there's all these other areas. You know, you can't prevent some drunken idiot from diving off of the poor Elliot jetty when it's low tide. You know, mm. someone's going to do that and someone's going to going to um, give themselves a um, neck injury. But if we can stop particular parts of um, particular design criteria of cars from being at high risk of causing these types of injuries and actually divert them so, in fact, you just get a broken arm or a collapsed lung instead of a spinal cord injury, then, um, you know, that's what we're trying to work towards. Uh, just as you're, as you're describing all this, I'm just I'm, – I'm sitting here in my chair and I'm moving my neck around and I'm just – every time I hear, like, I feel like a little creak, I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm just like hyper, hyper aware of everything that's going on in my body at the moment. Well, I, I'm very biased, but the neck, but the neck is just like it's crazy. I mean, the head is probably the most important part of our body. It's what mm. makes us really live. Mm. But the neck is what supports that, and the neck is what transports all everything that's, that we're seeing and perceiving and feeling and thinking and doing to the rest of our rest of our body. Mm. Um, and likewise, you know, everything that comes from the rest of our body up to our head is what allows us to do that. And the neck has to be so resilient and so strong, but also have so much flexibility and motion to allow us to just, you know, look at 270 degrees uh, laterally around us um, and allow us to take in our surroundings and um, be aware of danger and, and, you know, all those kind of things. And it's, it's an extremely challenging thing to research because of that for that because of that reason <laughs> it's so flexible but so strong uh, i mean i mean what what goes through your head when you're seeing people doing windmills on stage or whatever like, <laughs> you know just like looking at it going oh like uh are we doing damage here actually there's a funny story about that as well there was a group in um university of new south wales i'm pretty sure or somewhere in new south wales um and they did a study on the effects of headbanging and um, whether it can affect your brain, and their conclusion was that anyone who headbangs is going to give themselves brain damage in the long in the long term. Mm. Um, and so they published this result, but they used the wrong equations. Like they completely fucked it up. Yeah. And um, you know, obviously, like it doesn't give you brain damage. Like it, it's not good for you, probably, um, if you do it too regularly and and too vigorously, um, just like anything you do. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they, they published a study saying headbanging was um, going to lead to, to brain damage, but it was completely bogus. And I don't think that's even been retracted. I think that's still a published article. Oh, well, I fucking – I would have fucking re- um, believed that. I mean, I, I know guys that just, you know, will not stop headbanging from the moment the doors open until the end of the night, and and they're, they're pretty close to being brain dead themselves, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I know a few people. Is that know. correlation? Or, is that correlation or causation, though? <laughs> yeah, <That's>... yeah. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very, yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> nah, you love those people. They're good people. Oh, look, mate, they pay to get in. They're, they're the people that, that they're the people that buy the tickets in advance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the merch. And they the buy merch. all the merch. Yeah, straight away. They don't wait for the discounts. They're, they're first. They're first day buyers. <laughs> you got you to support them. <laughs> Oh yep. man! Oh, dude! Like, like incredible stuff. I mean, I know you've been doing it for a while, and and it's you know it's it's part of part of your life, and you know, um, obviously, I, I'm sure you've got enough awareness to understand that what you're doing is pretty pretty incredible. But I think I think especially for for anybody that 
has a stereotypical everyday sort of job um, or everyday existence, um, sort of, you know, understanding some of the stuff that you do is pretty, pretty incredible. So it's, it's cool. And I think also just, um, and I've, I've done this quite a bit with um, other people who have been on the podcast, especially a lot of musos. Like I think people sort of give musos a bit of a bad rap because, you know, you throw your stereotypes against, against, uh, against a lot of us where we're, we live for the music and, you know, especially appearance wise and all the stereotypes you can, you can chuck against a, a stereotypical metalhead or whatever. And, um, a lot of us have get up to some really cool stuff and we've got some really great stories and we've, we, we're just totally invested in more than just, uh, just, you know, music and stuff like that, which is still a massive part of our lives. So that's, it's mad that, um, that you do what you do. It's, it's, it's cool. And, and not just because yeah, I mean, it's got a shock factor, but it's, it's obviously got a really important purpose as well. Yeah. I think, I do think, especially metalheads obviously get a bad rap, but you know, I, like I said before, I did a lot of um, sport as a kid mm. and, you know, I think <laughs> metalheads get a, 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 um, yeah, a very bad rap because I'd put, you know, even just the general population and even people I, I, you know, I work with or I'm my colleagues and stuff like that, you know, yeah, you know, uh, some musicians might not be, you know, book smart or whatever you want to call it in terms of how you label intelligence, but you'd put them up, um, you know, one for one with a lot of a lot of my mates, a lot of general people I know in the music industry, and they're just as smart, you know. Mm. It's just it's just a different type of intelligence. And, uh, yeah, people, yeah, they just get a bad rap. There's a lot, lot of good good people doing a lot of good things in music outside of just their music so um yeah i think i think um everyone's got different strengths in different areas and um i know a lot of people that um have have sort of worked in in fields at least from my you know my point of view and sort of when i size myself up against somebody else like oh fuck man like you know you've you're you've, you've done some incredible things but then i see him in a particular social setting or a setting that I've got some comfort in and, and you watch, you watch them crumble because their skill set and their strength is in a different area. And I think that's, that's a really, it's a really assuring thing for, for, for a lot of us out there that that sort of go, you know what, we're we're all, we're all pretty good at different things. And that's, that's, that's what, that's what makes the world go around really. I mean, we need, you need that variance and that balance and um, not everybody can be doing the same thing. So, but, course, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's cool to, to see some, uh, some, um, some real sort of, uh, challenges to the stereotypes out there. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Alrighty, go and support Ryan and, uh, the boys in Shatterbrain by checking out their new album, Pitchfork Justice, which is out now. Um, you can go to shatterbrainmetal.com and uh, go and pick up a copy of their new album. It's on all the streaming platforms, of course, and Shatterbrain's on all the uh, the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. And I'll put links to that um, and all the bands that Ryan's involved with, as well as the things that we spoke about in this episode as well. I'll uh, dump a whole bunch of links in the show notes over at andysocial.net or andydowling.net, and you can check it all out. As always, with all the guests on the podcast, go and reach out to these guys and gals and... Um, leave a little message, leave a comment on the socials or flick them an email or a message or whatever it is and uh, let them know that uh, you heard them on the podcast and hopefully enjoyed it and, uh, yeah, spread the love. Um, I think uh, everyone would get a kick uh, getting a message or a comment from somebody that's listened to them on the Andy social. So make sure you do that um, and, uh, yeah, I'm no doubt they'll be stoked. 
Now, before we wrap it up, um, as mentioned at the beginning of these podcasts, I'm on Patreon. Um, Patreon has been incredibly rewarding for me uh, just to even have this collective of legends that have been supporting me with the podcast. And already um, the impact of Patreon has been massive in curbing, uh, curbing, curbing, curbing or curbing, whatever. It's doing great things uh, when it comes to the cost of this podcast. So from a financial point of view, it's been fantastic. It's covering all my editing costs at the moment. Um, so that's taken a bit of uh, the, the uh, financial burden off me, but more importantly, it's um, it's uh, motivating me to continue to smash through any social and put out more of these great episodes, and also work on a lot of other different things. So my Patreon community is aware of some of the little ideas that are bouncing around in my noggin and that I'm working on at the moment. So if you're interested in uh, backing uh, what I do and being a part of some of this other stuff, um, and just listening in and just getting a getting a taste, a little bit more of a taste of my world, then uh, go over to patreon.com slash Andy Dowling. If I can even say my name properly. Uh, And yeah, if you just want to support with uh, nothing in return, there's a little dollar tier, um, which is nice and easy. But there's a a $5 and a $10 tier as well, which gives you access to different things. And there's a a Patreon-exclusive podcast there where uh, you get to hear me waffle on and uh, do a whole bunch of different things, which... uh, yeah, which which I really enjoy doing. So um, it's been a massive help, um, and I'm hoping to uh, to continue to build that little community there. And uh, it's just it's been fantastic. So go over there, um, check it out, and um, and yeah, support uh, support what I, what I do if you can. Um, and a little shout out to my social circle tier supporters. Um, these guys are the the majority um, as far as. Um, supporting the podcast um, when it comes from a financial point of view, which is absolutely incredible. And they are just absolute champions um, with with backing me, supporting me. So it's just incredibly cool. So these guys deserve a shout out. Andrew from Perth, Mick G from Sydney, Ash from Deniliquin, Dan from Dapto, uh, Rod from North, uh, Rayleigh in North Carolina, I should say, Saul from Oxford in the UK, Patrick from Canberra, Liam from Brisbane, and Chris from Sydney. Thank you very much, folks. Absolute legends. Um, means a hell of a lot. You guys know the drill. And that's it, folks. Um, if you're not interested in Patreon or you can't at this point in time, um, you can still support this podcast by simply listening to it. So if you're listening to me right now, you're supporting. So that means a hell of a lot. So thank, thank you very much. Um, and as always, ratings, reviews, a bit of social media love. Um, you can join the private uh, social uh, Facebook group as well. So you can search for the Andy Social on Facebook groups and you'll probably find it. Um, you can send a little request through and I'll accept it. And uh, there's lots of little interesting things in there and some goodies and giveaways and stuff like that as well. Um, so there's lots of things out there, but um, lots of ways to support the podcast. Um, but the fact that you're listening to it right now means a hell of a lot. So that's it. Until next week, folks, another episode coming your way very soon. Until then, take care. Ta-ta. Bye-bye. Larry. Larry, please.